Um, we are uh, back in the book of Exodus after our Brother Noah's really fabulous uh, sermon from uh, 1 Samuel um, 17. I'm still thinking about, and he didn't know I was going to embarrass him like this, I'm still thinking about that we get to enjoy the spoils of a war we did not fight. What a great gospel reminder. And uh, with that great gospel reminder, we're back to the plagues, so that's awesome. Um, And while you turn to the book of Exodus, which is the second book in your Bible, we're in chapter 7, let me just take you back to April of 2020, everybody's favorite time in the last 10 years, and uh, just go through a mental exercise with me, and do you remember the, uh, how, how empty the shelves were? And I don't mean just the bath tissue, uh, but, you know, moment of transparency with you guys, the Carters always have one of those mega Charmin packs on deck, will never run out again. Uh, we're going to be like our grandparents who kept the rubber band balls uh, during the Great Depression, those things, like, they should never leave you. And, uh, but no, I remember going to Publix and going to the meat department, and there not being any meat. And I don't mean meat that I would buy. I mean like meat, period, nothing in those bunkers. And then going to Kroger, and there's nothing there. Uh, I have a memory of uh, family members going to Toyota Field to pick up um, trash bags of chicken breasts because distributors couldn't get chicken to the grocery stores because the Teamsters, the drivers, were all sick. You remember this? And then the chicken, we ran out of chicken nationwide because the plant, the workers all got sick. It, it revealed, in a way, these vulnerabilities that this great behemoth economy of America can have, these single-point failures in this entire system, just very vulnerable uh, moments. And it's, it also reminds us of vulnerabilities that nations have in general, and today we're going to see a genuine vulnerability. Uh, those single points of vulnerability that we have are all the more acute in Egypt, okay? Today, we're going to talk about the plagues which center around the Nile River, and it's almost impossible, it's almost impossible to overemphasize how critical the Nile River is to Egyptian life. There's a single lifeline of water around which all of the systems in Egypt orbit. It is Again, impossible to overemphasize how important this river is. And if you can bring yourself back to what it felt like, this collapse of normal life in spring of 2020, by the summer, I think everybody figured out what was, you know, how to live life. But those early days, how it felt, that's approximately how it felt when the lifeline of Egypt began to fall apart. And that, I'm going to suggest to you, is actually the whole point of these first plagues. This temporary loss of the Nile caused a water crisis for sure, but it also brought life to Egypt to a grinding halt. And then the plague of frogs caused this invasion and subversion that we'll talk about in just a second. And then the gnats made it all the more worse, this grinding halt. Why? Because the hubris of one man. When confronted by a messenger of Yahweh himself, Pharaoh had refused to bend. You see, generations prior to Egypt, the court magicians remember, had failed to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And so they called upon a young man in jail, right, to, to come forward and show Yahweh's power in Egypt. Let me remind you of Genesis forty-one twenty-eight. It is as I told you, Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. This phrase, what he is about to do, occurs again, and not until this moment, in Exodus chapter 6, when this announcement of plagues is, is pronounced for Moses. Exodus 6.1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I do to Pharaoh, 
with a strong hand he will send them out, and a strong hand he will drive them from his land. This idea that we will see what the Lord is about to do is important. God is going to demonstrate his handiwork by turning the Nile into blood, by sending frogs out of the Nile, and then turning the dust into gnats. And at some point, right, Pharaoh at any point could have seen these and relented, but he persists in his rebellion, and uh, he is reckoning with but refusing to respond to the, the evidence of God's handiwork. And at some point, each and every one of us is going to have to reckon with the handiwork of the Almighty God. The question for us is, are we going to do like others when pointed to the, word, the work of God? Are we, going to, are we going to harden our hearts or are we going to bow the knee? Because the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear that apart from Christ's work in us, we all have a willful knowledge gap where we see these clear evidences of God's power, and we refuse to respond to them. What is going to happen in our hearts, and how do we remedy this gap? That's what we'll be talking about today. But if you have your Bibles, again, open up to Exodus 7. I'll be reading from verse 14 to Exodus 8, 19. And that's not that long of a passage, but I'll read Exodus chapter 7, 14, all the way to 8, 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And then you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it will turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over their canals, their ponds, their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, and in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went to his house. He did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs." The Nile shall swarm with frogs, shall come up into your house and into your bedrooms and on your bed and in the house of your servants and on your people, in your ovens, in your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and upon your people and on all of your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools to make the frogs come up onto the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came out and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me 
what I plead you for your servants and for your people, that the, law, the frogs be cut off from you, your houses, and left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord God. The frogs shall go away from you and your house and your servants and your people. They shall only be left in the Nile. So Moses went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. And when Pharaoh saw there was respite, he hardened his heart, and it would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with a staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So they, there were gnats on man and beast. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You see that right there in uh, Exodus eight nineteen. This is the finger of God. That's from which I take the sermon title, Don't Miss the Finger of God. Each and every one of us, again, is going to have to come, uh, come to a moment of decision where we are going to respond at some point to God's revelation of himself. We'll either bow the knee today uh, while there's time under mercy, or we will bow the knee to King Jesus uh, when it is too late. The first thing, though, is that we need to see that we have the same knowledge problem that Pharaoh has. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Remember, this is the question that Pharaoh asks Moses at the very beginning. When Pharaoh goes in and says, let my people go so that they may worship the Lord, Pharaoh looks at Moses and said, who's the Lord so that I, may, uh, so that I would obey him? Uh, that's that's the, the context of this. But ultimately, the truth is, as we've seen, Pharaoh is not interested in knowing who the Lord is. Because repeatedly, when he's given irrefutable evidence of who the Lord is, he refuses to respond. That first question that he asks, who's the Lord? God tells him, I'm going to show you that I'm the Lord. And every time that there's evidence of who the Lord is, Moses rejects that evidence and he hardens his heart. Think about the testimony of Scripture and how contemporary it is to see a work of God and then people settle for a lesser explanation. Everybody has to give an account, for example, of why there's something rather than nothing. And one of my favorite kind of explanations for the something rather than nothing is that God created it. That's why there's something. And he fine-tuned it to the, to the extent that life is perfectly balanced and it exists in the most uh, extraordinary circumstances. Beyond impossible probabilities, there is something. When we think about this, though, people will settle for lesser explanations. You think just about how our contemporary culture understands this idea Right? One of our philosophers, he's kind of prophesied about our modern age and one of the things that we're seeing and facing with this, who is the Lord that I would obey his voice? He's a philosopher that writes this book called Twilight of Idols, Friedrich Nietzsche. And he asks the question, he says, if our societies have killed God, that is, they've rejected this idea that there's a cause of all things, people will make any moral demands based on anything that they think. And people misunderstand Nietzsche, I think, in this book. He's not making an argument that they should do that. I think he's making an observation that 
if people believe there is no God, then they will resort to the God in their own heart. And then they'll actually be very violent to make sure that you comply with what their God in their heart wants. You hear it all the time today. What right do you have to tell me how to live my life? Well, I think that there's a creator who has a design for your life, and it's a good design. Well, why should I obey his voice? And that's an argument that is said in other words and other places a million different times, but it illustrates that we have a knowledge gap where we see that there is something rather than nothing. We see these invisible attributes, and we will settle for lesser explanations. This is, I think, what Paul is talking about in Romans 1. It's the same sort of idea Paul, when he talks in Romans 1, that the, the invisible attributes that there are make it plain that there is a God, but we, in our fallen nature, will turn to lesser things and make idols out of them and follow them instead. And then what does Paul say about that? What happens as a result of that? God hands people over to their depravity. I think that's what's at the heart of Pharaoh's experiences in Exodus chapter 17. When he asks for explanation for these wonders that are happening in front of him, he gets a lesser demonstration. We've already talked about why the serpents are lame compared to Aaron's serpent. We're about to talk about why the frogs are lame and why the Nile is, is lame. But he looks at these lesser explanations and he hardens his heart. He turns from the greater explanation to the lesser and God gives him over to his depravity. Because eventually, second point, every single one of us is going to eventually know that the Lord is God. We're going to eventually know. Here's the truth. What the Bible says that at the end of all things, every single one of us will bow the knee to King Jesus. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, that everybody on the earth and under the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At some point in eternity, right, future, everyone will bow the knee to Jesus, thanking him either for saving our souls and bringing us into his family or bowing the knee when we see who he is in his enthroned glory. And just as a, an aside, we shouldn't count his, his patience to do that yet as slowness as Peter reminds us. Because his patience so far is not slowness. He's waited for you and I to come in. Uh, but again, we shouldn't count that patience as slowness. Every one of us is going to have to eventually know that the Lord is God and Pharaoh is made to know now. And perhaps... Your time is not up. You're still alive. And as Second Corinthians says, now's the day of salvation, right? Today, believe. But it's Pharaoh's moment right now. He's about to know that the Lord is God. Now, there's a number of ways to preach about the plagues, okay? I'm going to run through them with you. There's 10 plagues. And so sometimes people will talk about these plagues, and they'll preach individually that each plague is attacking a particular Egyptian deity. And that is a, that's a good approach, but that would have us in Exodus into 2026, and that doesn't seem really tenable or sustainable to me. Okay, then the other more uh, reasonable way to uh, do it is in a socio-spatial kind of way. These plagues happen at the Nile. These plagues happen outside of the Nile, at the side of the Nile. These plagues happen, and you're, you're grouping them together. The problem with that organization in doing it is that as you get to the end, some of them don't fit together in that quite neat pair. So we'll be approaching this as triads, and I'll, I'll explain the triadic structure in just a moment, but a triad is just a group of three, okay? Let's just lay out these plagues for just a moment. If you have your Bibles in front of you, and I'll just 
point them out really quick, and then I'll explain why I think grouping them together in the way we have it is textually faithful. So the first three plagues we've already heard about, blood, frogs, mosquitoes. Each of these, fro- each of these, each of these plagues um, comes with a warning for the first two and no warning for the last one. Pharaoh's not given a warning about the gnats. The time of day is always in the morning for the first plague, and then there's a direction given from God about where uh, the men are supposed to go. They're supposed to station themselves by the Nile. And then the second one is go to Pharaoh. And that pattern repeats itself through these three triads. So the next three would be the swarms, the pestilence, and the boils. We see the same pattern there, that they're told where to station themselves for the first plague, for the swarms. And then the second one is they're told to go to Pharaoh. But then the boils, there's no warning. There's no place given and there's no station direction. It just happens by the, by the work of God. And then the, the, the next three, the same, hail, locust, darkness. In the morning, station yourself. The second plague, go to Pharaoh. And then the darkness, no warning, none given. So three triads, but that leaves the tenth plague which is unique, and it's, it's particularly devastating. And it's the emphasis on the death of the firstborn, right, where there's a warning, but there's no instruction given. That, to me, I think is, is, uh, is a more faithful way to think through this. But as we talk about this, let's just make one, uh, one observation textually. The high level and high degree of organization continues to suggest a single author, that Moses is the one who wrote this in Exodus. So at the heart of this first triad is this announcement that Pharaoh will know that the Lord is God. Exodus seven seventeen. Thus says the Lord, by this, that is the sign of the Nile, you shall know that I am the Lord. So here's our first plague. Water to blood and it's to know that God is the Lord of our socioeconomic systems, 7, 14 through 25. And you might hear socioeconomic systems, you're like, it's a river, what are you talking about? But again, I think sometimes we can think about rivers. We drive over the Tennessee River all the time. And we don't really think about how important rivers are because we have highways. But in ancient Egypt, again, it's so difficult to overemphasize how critical Egypt is as a lifeline for the nation of Egypt. It was around which the Egyptians formed their national identity, and it was so influential, it was their mythology. The closest approximate, perhaps, that Americans can think of is how the Wild West has this folkloric feel to us. We talk about the Wild West, and we all kind of generally know what it means. It's larger than life, uh, and, and it's not even necessarily limited to a particularly uh, specific geographic region. Arizona's in the Wild West, but the Wild West seems bigger than even Arizona. And perhaps that's the closest approximate that Americans could have to how big the Nile is in Egyptian minds. But let's kind of remind ourselves what happens in the text. God tells Moses that Pharaoh's heart is going to be hard, but to go to him anyways. And Pharaoh is going to see that he's Yahweh by what he does to the Nile. The Nile then is going to be turned to blood by Aaron's staff, the same staff which transformed into a serpent and ate the other serpents, that's what's going to happen. The fish are going to die and the land is going to stink. That's an interesting, interesting thing to, to say until you remember that just prior, 
How did the Israelites feel like Moses' actions made them be in the land? The Israelites felt like they stunk to Pharaoh. And so God is going to show Pharaoh what truly stinks, which is his regime of death. And then third, Pharaoh's going to see his magician's trick and what he needs to just dismiss this work of Yahweh. Let's pause and think, though, about the Nile for a moment and think about this is the place from which the boys of Israel are dumped into the river. Do you remember how this book opened up months ago? The firstborn, the boys of, of, of the Hebrews are dumped into the river. This place of death is revealed to be what it truly is, a place of death. The Nile River occupied this idea in the people's minds that their life source was not from God, but from Pharaoh who seemingly controlled the Nile River. And God himself is showing Pharaoh is no, no God. Pharaoh has no control over this. I am the one. And notice Pharaoh's lack of concern for his own people. Does Pharaoh think about his people, or what does the text say? The text says he goes back to his house, and what does he leave his people to do? They're digging by the side of the river to try to find water, because there's no water to drink in all the land. This guy doesn't care about his people. He has no concern for their plight. He's a truly wicked, truly wicked man. The second plague a swarm of frogs, writes to know that God is the Lord of all of our idols. So God is, is the Lord of the systems that we organize ourselves around, these symbols, this now river, this place that the society bursts out from in their own self-conception. But then he's also the Lord of the things that we think are really important in our lives that really aren't. Again, at the center of 8, 1, 15, is this knowing God. Look at verse 10. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. So the first plague that you will know. The second plague, you will know. The Israelites, again, felt like they stunk to the Egyptians, so God made their Nile stink. It was a source of pride in in Egypt, this Nile River. And the rebellion, even of these frogs, shows that Pharaoh can't even control his own elements. And you might think to yourself, like I did before I studied this, frogs, that's a weird choice. It's okay if you feel that way. I felt that way. The rebellion of these amphibians subverts Pharaoh's control in his element, right? And even the gnats, as we'll see in just a moment. So let's remember what happened in the text, and I want to zoom in here on the frogs. Yahweh tells Moses that Egypt is going to be filled with frogs. That part's really important. We'll come back to that in just a second. Then Pharaoh asked for a stop to the plague because the frogs are overwhelming, and so God relents. Because again, God is not waging war against the Egyptians. He has no disposition towards the Egyptians of hate. He's really trying to show Pharaoh that the Lord is God. So when Pharaoh asks, show mercy, what does the Lord do? He shows mercy. He pulls back. He relents. Then third, the land stinks again because not just the Nile is rotten, but these frogs are rotten. And then Pharaoh, he asks for something and gets it and still refuses to acknowledge that the Lord is God. These frogs, though, they play an interesting and important role because uh, Psalm 105.30 says they bring the plague into Pharaoh's bedroom. The first plague, Pharaoh can escape it. He can escape the effects of the Nile because he can go up to his 
to his chambers, and he can have some of his servants go and dig water for him by the side of the Nile. They can make a well. That's what that means. They're going to dig a well, get fresh water out, and then they're going to carry it up to Pharaoh, presumably. Pharaoh has to drink water. But this one, Psalm 105 says, that the frogs go into his bedchamber. Pharaoh can't escape this. He can't escape God's plague. This is also really interesting, though, because frogs, again, you might think, weird choice, not the first thing I'd go to, but frogs are a very important symbol in Egypt, kind of like a serpent of Pharaoh's power, but of fertility within the Egyptian religion. They were unclean to the Israelites, but in ancient Egypt, they could not be killed. That's actually what makes the plague of frogs even more intolerable, because the Egyptians cannot kill the frogs without subverting their entire religious system, you see. They have to let the frogs live, which is why there's tons of frogs to heap up when this is all over. But it's ironic because the Lord is multiplying their idol. He's multiplying their God of fertility to show them that this God is actually no God at all, but he's making their image a nuisance. It's a play to show them that the thing which you think is most valuable is actually a plague on your soul. And you will hate, you will hate the thing that you're multiplying in your life by the, by the time I'm done with you. It's even possible, and it's probable actually, that the midwives carried charms of frogs. So just think about this. These midwives who were responsible for killing the firstborns of the Hebrews, their frog charm is, is being subverted, and the place which they were supposed to commit these infanticides has now revealed itself for what it is. God is showing the Egyptians, this is who you are. God does the same for us in a lot of ways we'll talk about it in just a moment. But let's not be fooled by Pharaoh. When he asks, verse 8 of, of chapter 8, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs for me and my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. He's not asking for God to take away his hard-heartedness. You see that there? He's not asked for God to take away his hard-heartedness. He wants to be freed from the consequences of his hard-heartedness. I don't know about you, but there have been many times where I've been in a situation, right? Especially before I knew the Lord, where I wanted to be freed from the consequences of sin without actually being freed from sin. Has anyone ever been there before? Pharaoh is revealing himself in a lot of ways to be like us. People who would come to Jesus and say, I would like to have your benefits, but not your lordship. I would like to have your life, but not your cross. The third plague we see, this cloud of mosquitoes, gnats, or lice. I'll get to that in a second. This is to show that God is the Lord over all creation. So to go back just briefly, we've seen the Nile, these systems that we think we create, God's the Lord over them. He can turn the whole thing upside down, our whole sense of identity upside down in a moment and, and show it to be the identity of death it really is. But then you also take the smaller things which we make really big things, frogs in ancient Egypt, but for us, could be anything and, and show it to be the nuisance that it really is to our hearts. But then here he's showing Pharaoh, I'm God over it all. So to review the passage, 16 through 19, Yahweh tells Moses he's going to transform the gnats, the ground into gnats. The magicians realize that they can't do it, 
and they call the gnats the finger of God. And yet still, Pharaoh doesn't listen to them. They could have been gnats for a couple of reasons. The word gnat, it, it really is irrelevant, but I'm, I say mosquito because the type of gnats that are in Egypt are biting insects. We are plagued in our own American South with so many different varieties of small insects that a gnat is a very specific type of thing for us. But in Egypt, it's only the word for just those things that bite. So mosquito, perhaps, or lice, perhaps. You'll see some translations say mosquito or lice. It all means the same thing, a very small, very annoying, biting insect. God is showing that Pharaoh is not powerful at all and that all creation falls under his purview. You see, Egyptian religion, again, believed that Pharaoh controlled the Nile. He had power drawn from it through his channeling of the, of the, of the spirit of the snake, right, which the Nile snakes through Egypt, and, and that he had control over all amphibians who came out of the Nile. That was his domain. But God is showing that he can't, uh, the Lord God can do all that in Pharaoh's domain and then outside of Pharaoh's domain as well. He has control over the things that Pharaoh never possibly ever could control, the earth. And he turns them into gnats. Uh, Kent Hughes on this passage has a really great paragraph I'd love to read for us about this idea of the magicians pointing out this is the finger of God. Many people believe, quote, many people believe without ever believe in God without ever coming to him for salvation. In fact, if the surveys are correct, which this is dating itself slightly, but not totally, most people believe in God. They acknowledge the existence of a creator. They confess their need for a higher power. They still speak of a man upstairs. And when there's a natural disaster, they still refer to it as an act of God. That language is even in our legal contracts, right? If you sign an insurance claim and there's an act of God, that's what you're getting insurance for. When people are talking about sending positive vibes, which doesn't mean anything, but they're still believing that there is something meaningful there, that I I am doing something for you, that I can't quite put my finger on what it means to send positive vibes, but I want something for you that I can't do myself to bring it in. Somebody somebody from outside is going to have to do this, so I'm going to give you positive vibes or thoughts and prayers right? Our culture still has this idea that we will acknowledge the finger of God in this sense, but not acknowledge him as Lord. So we have a knowledge problem, just like Pharaoh has. And just as God is demonstrating his power now, temporally, in this particular moment over Egyptian gods, Colossians 2.15 tells us that in Christ's death and resurrection, his victory on the cross is a testimony to his authority over all powers, not just the earth in Egypt, this small domain, but over all powers and authority is what the text says, Colossians 2, 17. By doing what? By disarming them is what Paul writes. What does the, the law of God command here? That we would know that the Lord is God. The same, the same thing that is for Moses is for you. But here's the deal, our, our, and this brings me to my next point. Our unwillingness to respond to clear evidence reveals in us our hard hearts. Our unwillingness to respond reveals in us our hard hearts. Pharaoh's hardened heart highlights and leads to an increased suffering of the Egyptians. The Egyptians 
of this first triad are already suffering. They're out of water. They're getting eaten alive by gnats, mosquito, lice, just biting insects. And they have frogs in their house. The, the plague of the frogs is so bad that they, that they have to pile them up in heaps. They can't kill them. They can't destroy them. They just have to wait for them to rot and go away. To do anything other would violate the major tenets of their religion. You think about how uh, a Hindu wouldn't kill a cow. An Egyptian couldn't kill a frog during this period. Exodus 17, 14 through 8, 19, this passage it shows God's absolute control over nature and nations. That these plagues are not just a random disaster. One of, the, one of the things, if you read some commentaries on this, they'll say, well, this could be an algae bloom that makes the, the, uh, the water look red. But that's just not what the text says, and that's not what the actions of the Egyptians seem to indicate. Uh, uh, vessels of water would not have an algae bloom at the same time that a river would have an algae bloom. And an algae bloom would still contaminate the groundwater like when you bring it up. It would still be contaminated with the same bacteria. There's something supernatural happening here. These frogs that come out, some people will point out, well, maybe it was just the mating season and that's why they all came out. But there's something odd about this, right? That these frogs don't just stop just at their normal boundaries, they're amphibians, which means they need to be close to water. Otherwise, they dry out and die. There's something supernatural about this. They're going into Pharaoh's bedchamber itself, and they're piling up. They're heaping up in the land. And then these gnats. It's impossible to turn dust into gnats. God is absolutely powerful over nations and nature. They're not random disasters. They're targeted judgments on Pharaoh to demonstrate that Pharaoh is small and God is large. In the New Testament, we're constantly warned, brothers and sisters, uh, against hardening our own hearts. Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 8, for example, says, do not harden your heart. Christ comes to soften our hearts and offer a way to us by his lordship of killing the hard hearts that we have and giving us new hearts in him. In spite of this, Next point, in spite of our hardness of heart, God, in fact, does reveal himself in speech and deeds. You see, even in his judgments, God is merciful. His purpose is redemptive. The plagues, you see, are incremental. He doesn't go straight for darkness and straight for death of the firstborn. He starts with, it's the most adorable thing. He starts with the Nile. He starts with frogs. He starts with the gnats. He's instructive, revealing himself and his character to both Egypt, but critically, Israel. When the Israelites come out of the land, the psalmist is going to repeat over and over, you guys seem to have forgotten how merciful the Lord was back in Egypt and how he brought you out. And the same thing that he did, Psalm, Psalm 105, this is the point, the same thing he did to Egypt, he could do to you. Repent and believe. The links between the Egyptian plagues and also the image in Revelation 11, for example, tells us that what happened in Egypt here is not only is not the only time that people, right, are going to plead with folks to repent and not be given away mercy. You remember the two witnesses that uh, John sees at the very end in Revelation 11. Uh, they're going to be prophesying about the mercy of God, and they're going to be given signs. And what are the signs? Turning water to blood, right? This won't be the first time 
the only time that people are given signs to help us see and escape judgment. You see, God is going to always save his people from their worst tendencies by putting his finger on the things we love more than him. The finger of God is always going to rest on the things that we love more than him, and often it's going to come at great personal pain, but ultimately it's for our greater good. The surgeon who goes in and cuts out a tumor, it causes pain for sure, but it's ultimately for an ultimate good. We want the scalpel so we don't have the tumor. In connection to Christ, though, Christ is this mercy of God. You see, next, next point and final point, Christ softens our hardness by showing us God's heart. The finger of God occurs two other times in the Bible. One of them is in Exodus at Sinai where the finger of God writes the law on the tablets. Then the other time is in Psalm chapter 8, the handiwork of God. You have made these things with your fingers. So when we see finger of God, we're seeing the creative authority. That's what that phrase, finger of God, means. The authors are intending for us to see the creative authority of God. There's one other time that I could find, there, there might be more, but that I could find where the finger of God occurs. It occurs in Luke 11. You'll turn there and we'll, we'll close here. I want you to see that Christ softens our heart by showing us God's heart. Luke 11 says, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some people said, he cast out demon by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign of heaven. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided kingdom falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how does his kingdom stand? For you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore there will be, they will be your judges. But if it is by the what finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. That phrase is a very interesting one, and by my study, I could only find it in Luke. And it's right in the context of Jesus demonstrating his power in the arrival of the kingdom. That he's demonstrating the power of God to do what? What's this moment? He's rescuing a suffering man. Because the finger of God doesn't just make stars, it doesn't just write the laws, but it also comes and touches hearts. And he drives a demon out of a man who's plagued. And when people say, well, he's doing it by the power of demons, Jesus says, well, how's that possible? Why would, why would that work that way? What if it is, Jesus asked them, that I am doing this, right, by the power of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has come upon you, that by the finger of God I'm doing this. You see, we all have this knowledge problem where we're going to look at the things which we see, and we're going to make assumptions based on it. That God is, is great, he's worthy of praise, or that there's some lesser explanation for everything that there is. And our hearts are going to play tricks on us, but God's finger is always going to be placed on the things which we love more than him. And again, oftentimes at great personal pain. But this finger of God shows us that God cares enough to leave the throne of heaven to put his finger on this man who's suffering to plague the demon out of him, to judge this demon out, to save this sinner to himself. 
At some point, every single one of us is going to reckon with this evidence of God's handiwork, his, his work. The question for us is, and this is the question for you today, will it point out for you the work of God? Or will you reject it in arrogance? I pray you would come unto Christ who cares for you. Who cares for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you teach us in your word your care for us. You teach us acutely by the fact that you are willing to put your finger on the things in our lives. These judgments um, that oftentimes come at great personal pain to reveal your ultimate good in us. You're, you're happy to take the scalpel to our hearts, for example, to save us from ourselves and to save us from the things which are rotting our insides. We pray, God, that you'd have mercy on us, that those that don't know you would see what is and that they would respond to your kindness uh, and, see, and, and see you for all of your beauty that you are. And for those of us that are yours, Lord, I pray you'd reconfirm in us your care, your tender care, your creative authority, that you are working all things according to the purpose of your power, which is our good ultimately in Christ. And Lord, now as we move to the supper, I pray that you would show us again your work to bring about our salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.